I am Christopher Lynch, professor of Old Testament at Western Reformed Seminary, and I'm going to be addressing covenantal promise and the new covenant in Jeremiah and Ezekiel and the millennial kingdom. We're going to talk about God's covenant promises. In a world of social chaos and modern pandemics, disciples of Christ have hope. Believers always live in hope as we enter each new day of life, and particularly as we await the ultimate day of God's creating a new heaven and new earth. Titus 2, verse 13, calls the beginning of that day the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Christ's return brings our own resurrection from the dead and our final glorification to live forever in the presence of a holy God. At the same time, it brings judgment on God's enemies at the end of the present age and ushers in Christ's universal and immediate rule of righteousness. The blessed hope is the culmination of God's promises to a fallen world. We professors at Western Reformed Seminary believe that the covenant promises to God's covenanted people are the basis for covenantal premillennialism. God's first promise is a life-giving word of hope to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15. The coming offspring of the woman, namely Jesus, who was born of the Virgin Mary, would vanquish the serpent who introduced our first parents to disobedience and death. God's plan of a coming Savior expands, particularly in the Abrahamic covenant. Like Genesis 3.15, God's promises to Abraham are forward-looking, with the expectation of God's manifest blessing in the world, culminating in the pinnacle of a future great deliverer who will rescue humanity from sin and death for God's good purposes. God assured Abraham and those in his covenant that in Abraham's posterity, quote, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed God's voice, end quote. Of course, it's not all the posterity of Abraham, though through whom God reveals blessing, but rather in Jesus the Messiah, as explained in Galatians 3.16. That promised blessing is redemption in Christ alone. Under Abraham, God gathered believers and organized the primitive church. We who are under the new covenant are closely tied in to the covenant of Father Abraham because of everything sealed to us in the promised coming of Christ, the Savior, from the line of Abraham. We share the same hope of the gospel that God proclaimed to Abraham, according to Galatians 3, verse 8, as well as the reward of faith given to believing Abraham, as explained in Romans 4. And we enter the visible church by faith, as he and his children did, but now through baptism, a universal rite of initiation that transcends circumcision of the Abrahamic covenant. Jesus Christ, the mediator of the new covenant, is as fully ours today as he was in promise to Abraham and his ethnic posterity. The first verse of the New Testament bridges the Old and New Testaments. Quote, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The good shepherd in John 10, 16 announces that the time had come to gather non-Jewish believers into the church. Quote, other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. It speaks of the joining of the primitive church with the modern church under the 
new covenant. The Apostolic Church at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 makes clear that the new covenant has brought to maturity the primitive church from the days of Abraham, so that there is a new universal entrance into the church for all nations. Peter cites this prophecy of Amos at the council, quote, After this I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does all these things. So, the new covenant universalizes its membership beyond the Abrahamic covenant, bringing redemption in Christ to all nations beyond national Israel. The new covenant is internalized in our hearts. In contrast to those under the Sinai covenant, new covenant members know what it is to have God send forth his spirit into our hearts. Galatians 4 verse 6, leading to the true knowledge of God so that there is an affection to love and serve God. This is in contrast to those under the schoolmaster of the law of Sinai, Galatians 3.26. Many in ancient Israel fell into the practice of lukewarm worship, merely going through the motions of the Old Testament religious ceremonies. The new covenant is anticipated even under the Sinai covenant still. After admonishing his people to circumcise their hearts in Deuteronomy 10, Moses promises a day when God would bring his people from exile back into the promised land, and God himself would circumcise the hearts of his wayward people so that they would love and obey him. Here's what Deuteronomy 30, verses 4 through 6 say, quote, If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of the heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. This promising of a regathering from exile and renewing his people spiritually is rooted in God's sworn promises under the Abrahamic covenant. Quote, Therefore choose life, that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him, for he is your life, and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give to them. So there is the promise already, and that's cited from Deuteronomy 30, verses 19 and 20, but it's all tied in to the Abrahamic covenant, but it's in the context of promising this forthcoming new covenant. Two observations are in order here. First of all, God did bring home a remnant out of the Babylonian exile. Great promises were held forth to that remnant by the post-exilic prophets, especially Zechariah, but that Jewish remnant never realized those promises before the coming of their Messiah. Only at the coming of Christ was the new covenant established, and it appears that especially at the second coming of Christ, the children of Israel will return to the Lord with all their hearts. And here we compare Zechariah 12, verse 10, with Revelation, Revelation 1, verse 7, 
where it's prophesied that every eye shall behold him and they shall look upon him whom they have pierced. And in the context of Zechariah 12 verse 10, is speaking of God's historic people under the Abrahamic covenant. And then many of Israel will be converted at the return of Christ and enter the promised land. The second observation is that Abraham himself never inherited the land of Canaan. The one portion of land he owned was the plot he purchased for the burial site of his, him and his wife and the patriarchs. Hebrews 11 says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive an inheritance. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. These all died in faith, not having received things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles in the earth. That's verses 8 through 10 and verse 13, also of Hebrews chapter 11. Therefore, Abraham will reappear in the resurrection, and Jesus promises that, quote, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Cited from Matthew 8, verse 11. I believe this is when God fulfills his promise to give the land of promise to the patriarchs as reaffirmed in Deuteronomy 30, verse 20. I want to speak now of two key Old Testament prophets as new covenant harbingers. The prophets, as God's messengers of the Mosaic Covenant, repeat the exhortation to pursue true heart religion, and they predict a day when God's Spirit will enable His people to know and serve God alone, as opposed to the checkered history of the Israelites being hot and cold toward God. First of all, Jeremiah is the most explicit in naming the promised New Covenant. Jeremiah 31, verse 31 begins, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. The new covenant is promised to both historic Israel and Judah. It will do what the old Sinai covenant did not do. It will bring renewed hearts. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within, their, within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. It's Jeremiah 31, verse 33. The new covenant is an everlasting covenant that brings obedience and reverence through a thoroughgoing heart religion. This newness of heart prepares God's people for dwelling in the promised land. Listen to the further explanation of the new covenant in Jeremiah in chapter 32, verses 39 through 41. I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever, for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant, that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me into their hearts, that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and soul. 
God has a heart for his covenanted people. And he wants their heart to be turned toward the, the Lord God in obedience as well. The new covenant holds out the coming of a future Davidic king that must be found in the first and second comings of Jesus of the house of David. Jeremiah 34 continues the new covenant explanation. Verses 15 through 17. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called the Lord, our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And of course, that Davidic king who would always hold, sit upon that throne is the Lord Jesus Christ of the house of David and the seed of Abraham. Turning to Ezekiel, the younger contemporary of Jeremiah, we find further elucidation of what God will do under his promised new covenant. Ezekiel 36 begins to elaborate at length the promised new covenant. Ezekiel emphasizes that God will do for his people what they had failed to do. Under the, new, under the old covenant, they had not circumcised their hearts as an inward reality of the outward sign. Therefore, Ezekiel 36 promises spiritual renewal in God's people through removal of their stony hearts and God's planting in them true hearts of love and obedience. Listen to Ezekiel 36, verses 24 through 27. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take out the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my statutes and do them. Then you will dwell in the land that I gave your fathers. You shall be my people and I will be your God. Like Jeremiah, Ezekiel 34, verses 23 to 24, affirm that there will be a renewed Davidic kingship for God's gathered people under one shepherd, the Lord Jesus of the house of David. This passage also anticipates an idyllic age of security and prosperity under God's covenant of peace, promised in Ezekiel 34, verse 25 and following. When God forgives the iniquity of his people, I believe when Jewish survivors, quote, look upon him whom they have pierced, then they will again dwell in a renewed land that looks like the Garden of Eden. And that's the language of Ezekiel 36, 35. Only God is able to do this kind of work. We ourselves live under the new covenant now, but we do not yet see a renewed earth we still see the raging of the nations and the convulsions of this old world. Therefore, we look for a new heaven and new earth at Christ's promised second coming. I find it interesting that the following, that following the explanation of the new covenant in Ezekiel 36, God's next revelation to the prophet is the valley of dry bones in Ezekiel 37. This is God's picture to Ezekiel of a wide-scale resurrection of dead skeletons. 
This is not a symbolic restoration of a fallen nation, but a real vivification by God's Spirit in raising the dead out of open graves. Listen to Ezekiel 37, verses 13 and 14. Then you shall know that I am the Lord, when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves. I will put my Spirit in you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. What a wonderful promise. God promises to put a new heart within his people, but he also promises to put his spirit in to give us everlasting life, which is finally sealed at our own resurrection. This is done in keeping with God's ancient covenant promises. At the end of the present age, he will resurrect his people. He will gather them as one united nation in the historic land of Israel, and Christ, the son of David, will be king over them forever. And that includes us, who us Gentiles, who are under the new covenant. The subsequent two chapters in Ezekiel also deal with, uh, appear to deal with the end times. We go from that chapter of the dry bones in chapter 37 to chapters 38 and 39. And all of a sudden, these chapters introduce the sinister names of Gog and Magog, in verse, chapter 38, verse 2, chapter 39, verse 1. And their involvement appears to be connected to the eschatological phase of the promised land. Magog and his allies, quote, invade the land of those brought back from the sword and gathered from my people on the mountains of Israel, which had long been desolate. They were brought out of the nations. Now all of them dwell safely. And then Gog and Magog ascend, coming like a storm. It's verses 8 and 9 of chapter 38. Significantly, Revelation 20, verses 7 through 9, also mention Gog and Magog as appearing at the end of the millennium, even as Ezekiel introduces the final revolt of Gog, and Gog after the resurrection in Ezekiel 37. Now, when the thousand years have expired, and this is Revelation 20, verses 7 through 9, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them, devoured Gog and Magog. Revelation 20 is rooted in the Old Testament prophets and is a summary of all of our biblical expectations. The thousand-year reign of Christ and his glorified saints follows Christ's return at the Battle of Armageddon, explained in Revelation 19. The millennium is the threshold of the new earth as the culmination of all God's covenant promises as introduced in Isaiah 65 and 66 and as elaborated in Revelation 21 and 22. I want to turn to just a snapshot of what this millennial kingdom looks like. First of all, while all nature groans today, according to Romans chapter 8, verses 21 and 22, creation will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. It's found in Romans 8. Nature will be pacified according to Isaiah 65, verse 25. Here's what Isaiah says. 
The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. Second of all, in looking at the millennium, Christ will rule and bring universal peace so that, quote, nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. That's found in Micah chapter 4, verse 3. Thirdly, universal peace will enable a stable society wherein kingdom subjects will be stewards of their own homes in the enjoyment of universal righteousness. Micah 4, verse 4 describes each one sitting under his vine and under his fig tree. And just a fourth picture in the snapshot is that the saints will discharge a public stewardship of reigning with Christ for a thousand years. And that's very explicit in Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. And Paul also says that the saints will reign with Christ if we suffer with him from 2 Timothy 2, verse 12. In conclusion, God's Spirit spoke through the Old Testament prophets about the first coming of the Messiah. Clear prophecies like the virgin birth of Christ in Bethlehem and even poetic pictures like Psalm 22's predicted crucifixion of Jesus really happened at the Incarnation. In the same way, it is reasonable to look for real fulfillments from the clear, broad predictions of the Old Testament prophets that were not fulfilled at Christ's first coming. We look for the real fulfillment of the new heavens and earth wherein the God-man Jesus will reign immediately over his covenant people. The return of Christ is our blessed hope. At his appearing, he will usher in a new world wherein dwells righteousness.